Well, here we are. We're down to the last two books of the Old Testament, Malachi and Zechariah. Of all these books, Zechariah is the longest. He is the longest of the minor prophets, and so we'll just get started today. Zechariah's ministry began at the exact same time as Haggai, the last prophet we studied together, in 520 B.C. In fact, they began writing within two months of each other. So with Haggai, Zechariah, he is preaching and writing to the same people at the same time in the same town with the same issues. And you might remember these people were deeply discouraged. 50,000 of them had returned to Jerusalem after 70 years of exile, and in many ways, they would have been better off back in Babylon. They were circumstantially challenged. That's a condition. I wonder if you've come down with it. They were circumstantially challenged. For them, they were poor. They were highly taxed. Their homeland was in ruins. At one point, they were this powerful, free, and sovereign nation, and now, not so much. They felt insignificant. God seemed absent. We also live in a great nation the greatest nation in so many ways the world has ever seen. Can you imagine? Can you imagine it? we lost everything that we've built? What would it feel like for us as a people to lose everything that we have built and then be dragged off into slavery and then return decades later to ruins and have to start from scratch. They were, the way Merv put it last week, in a storm. They were like the Israelites fresh out of Egypt. They were in the wilderness, and they were in this middle between Promises made by God and promises kept by God. But it was not clear and obvious how God was going to fulfill these great promises. In fact, it looked like he wasn't going to. They were in the valley is another way that we might put it. So here was their problem. How would they... Hold on to joy and hold on to faith as they rebuilt their city. Here was God's solution. He sent two preachers. Haggai, whom we've already gotten to know, and now Zechariah who we are introduced to in chapter 1, verse 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. God says, you're back. Welcome home. Don't repeat the mistakes of your forefathers. 
Renew your commitment to me. He says, return to me, and I will return to you. In other words, renew your commitment to me, and I will take care of you. That's what God is going to say through this prophet. And did you pick up on a clue? Did anything stand out to you when I read that verse or when you read that verse with me? A clue that signaled how God was going to take care of them. God refers to himself three times in one verse as the Lord of hosts. He's so afraid that in just one verse, they're going to forget who's saying this, that he says three times, Lord of hosts, Lord of hosts, Lord of hosts. And then in the next three verses, three more times. So that's six times. Lord of hosts is a strange term to us. It sounds like king of the waiters, which doesn't invoke much. The NIV translates it in a way more relatable, the Lord Almighty. Even better is the NASB, the Lord of Armies. The Lord of Hosts refers to God as the commander-in-chief of everything. The Lord of hosts refers to God as the commander-in-chief of everything. So, how would God encourage his discouraged people? Well, the message that lies ahead in this book boils down to this. Be encouraged. The all-powerful God, the Lord of hosts, be encouraged. The all-powerful God is for you, and so your future is bright. That is this message boiled down. I'll say it one more time. Be encouraged was the message for God's discouraged people. Be encouraged, the all-powerful God is for you, and so your future is bright. There are three sections in this book, chapters 1 through 6, and then chapters 7 and 8, and then chapters 9 through 14, and our plan today is to get through the first six chapters where while he sleeps, Zechariah is given by God eight visions. Eight visions which combine to portray a bright future. A world that is at peace under the gracious rule of Jesus. God's appointed priest and king. Let's pray together and we'll look at these visions. Our Father in heaven, give us eyes and hearts to see you and know you today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you haven't already, open your Bibles to Zechariah. If you're using one of the Bibles in the seat back in front of you, you'll find It on page 745. Suck it up is not God's message to his people. Even though this temple that he called them to rebuild some 19 years ago sits unbuilt, while their homes are full of upgrades. They had mixed up their priorities. They had been lazy. They had whined. And yet, God was still 
patient. Instead of telling them to suck it up, instead of telling them to stop their whining, instead of growing angry with them, he gave them, we'll see, a telescope. A telescope is what Charles Spurgeon said hope is. Hope is like a telescope. And he writes, When we look through the bright optic glass, we discern the glory to be revealed and anticipate it with joyous confidence. Christians need hope. Christians need a telescope to see what they otherwise could not see. So for these people then, it is as if God's people were lost at sea and they needed Zechariah to climb to the top of the mast and to look through the telescope and to see what the people could not see and to tell them that land was ahead. And so that is what we have in these eight visions. This is what God showed Zechariah, which was meant to encourage his people. So let's get to it. Let's try to capture each of these visions and be warned they are unusual. We've got a great horseman. Four horns destroyed, a man with a measuring line, a high priest, a lampstand and olive trees, a flying scroll, a woman in a basket, and four chariots. So vision one, it's in chapter one, verses seven through 17. Here's the vision in verse eight and nine. I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel. Sorrel is a color. I don't know if you knew that. Sorrel is light reddish brown. If you learn nothing else in this sermon, (laughs) start throwing that word around. His horses were red, sorrel, and white. And then I said, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So this is the pattern of these visions. There's always this angel guide that is with Zechariah, and he helps him to interpret what he's seeing. I think he's sort of like the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future that were guiding Ebenezer Scrooge. That's what this angel does. So in this first vision, there's a meadow that's full of horses. And then before all these horses is this great man on a red horse. And so he asked the angel, what is the meaning of this? And here's what he's told in verse 11. The man and the horses were those whom the Lord sent to patrol the earth. And behold, all the earth remains at rest. And that was the current reality for God's people. The earth was relatively at rest. They weren't being terrorized. They weren't at war, which means it was a good time for them to get to getting. They needed to take advantage of this temporal peace and rebuild the temple. Verse 13 and following. And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So there it is. I'm protecting you right now, God says, so build my house. Now, this peace was not going to last. This was a temporary peace. There was going to be opposition. There was going to be opposition from without Jerusalem, and there was going to be opposition from within Jerusalem. But God was going to take care of them. And that is what he shows them in these seven remaining visions. And there is a structure to these visions. And I think if we can grasp the structure of these eight visions, it's going to be helpful for you. So I want you to imagine a mountain. And at the foot of one side of the mountain is this first vision. And these visions are actually in pairs. So at the foot of one side of the mountain, I want you to envision vision one. And then on the other side of the mountain, at the foot of that side, is vision eight. So vision one and vision eight. They both have horsemen, and they are both declaring peace. The first vision is declaring peace in the city of Jerusalem, And the second, the eighth vision, is declaring peace throughout the entire earth. And in between that peace is this mountain. So imagine then these visions going up one side of the mountain, vision two, and then vision three. And then at the peak of this mountain, the central visions... At the climax, the mountaintop, are visions four and five. And then back down the other side, vision six, vision seven, and finally vision eight. So again, the first and last vision, very similar. Both of them describe horses patrolling an earth that is at peace. And so in between those visions of peace, you'll see, we have God securing that peace by defeating all opposition to his rule. So let's begin after that first vision by jumping to vision eight so that you can see the broader peace that is envisioned there. That's in chapter 6. And I'll just read verses 1 through 3. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, and all of them strong. I'll summarize the rest. The angel goes on to describe these horses going off into four different directions. So they're covering the entire earth. It is symbolic of God's rule over the entire earth. So in the last vision, this peace that is described in the first vision is not restricted to the city of Jerusalem. It is peace that is over the entire earth. And now these visions between are visions of how God was going to secure that peace. So now let's go back, start climbing this side of the mountain, and look at the second vision that was given to Zechariah. It's back in chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. It's the shortest, and so we'll just read it. Chapter 1, verse 18. 
And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. So these are the enemies of God and his people, like Babylon and Assyria. Verse 20. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these, these craftsmen, have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. So these four horns represented four military powers that stood in opposition to God and they would be destroyed. Vision three, still climbing this mountain. In chapter two, verse one, it says, and I lifted my eyes and saw and behold a man with a measuring line in his hand. And we're not going to read all of it, but this vision is of a man and he's trying to measure the city of Jerusalem, but he can't measure the city of Jerusalem because it is too great. And the reason it is too great is because God was protecting it from their enemies. Look with me at verse 5. God said, I will be to her a wall of fire all around declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. Skip down to verse 8. For thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who served them. So there it is again. This is almighty God protecting his people. That's vision one, two, and three, which now brings us, and we'll take a bit more time on these two visions, to these two obviously central visions on this mountaintop that is God securing peace for his people. And they are visions four and five. And they are about Jerusalem's two leaders at the time. Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor. So vision four. It's in chapter three, verses one through ten. This is probably the most well-known text in Zechariah. It is a powerful vision of the high priest The high priest, there was only one at a time. And the high priest was the mediator between God and man. He is the one, the only one, who once a year would enter into the temple, go through the curtain into the most holy place to secure forgiveness and cleansing for God's people. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. This should go without saying, but these are visions, which means you should be trying to envision them. So picture this. This is Joshua the high priest, and Satan is standing at his right hand to accuse him. Because this is what Satan does. He is, among other things, the accuser. The accuser of Joshua here, of Job you might remember, of us, 
and he accuses Joshua. He accuses us of being unworthy of God's favor. And here's the thing. He's right. He's not lying. He has a case. Joshua was not worthy of God's favor. He was not worthy to be a mediator between God and man. Job was not worthy of God's favor. No one is worthy of God's favor. There's two images now as we read on. Two very powerful images. One is a brand that is plucked from a fire. So picture a handle and a pole and a brand. And you know what a brand is for? It's for branding something. And before it can brand anything, it needs to be heated in a fire. So where does a brand belong? It belongs in a fire. So we'll see the first images of a brand being plucked from the fire. And then the second image is a man in filthy clothes. So we've got to picture these. This was the whole point for Zechariah. And then as he communicated it to the people. And now as we read it today. Chapter 3, verse 2. And the Lord said to Satan, remember Satan is there accusing Joshua. This is what the Lord said to Satan. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Joshua was not worthy of or fit for God. He was worthy and fit for the fire. It's where a fire, a brand belonged. He was plucked out of the fire. So God does not rebuke Satan and say, you've got Joshua all wrong. He's one of the good ones. He's a good guy. He is worthy no, he is a brand that has been plucked from the fire. So, okay, Joshua had been chosen. Joshua had been plucked out. But now what? He's still unclean, right? This is the next image. It is a man in filthy clothes, chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity from you, your sin, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head, so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. These are powerful images that for those of you who are Christians here today, I shouldn't need to say anything else. Because these are pictures of what God has done for you. You are a brand that has been plucked from the fire. Your sin, your iniquity has been removed from you. And you have been clothed with righteousness. You have been given the righteousness of Christ. But there's something more he says about Joshua and the high priests before him and those who would follow verse 8 of chapter 3. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. This high priest, Joshua, he was a sign, which means that he points to something in the future. So what does he point to? Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. 
who is the branch? Isaiah 11.1 1 and Isaiah 53.2 make it clear. So does Jeremiah 23.5, which says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. What was God saying? He was saying that Jesus would be the true high priest. He is saying what the book of Hebrews in the New Testament would tell us looking back at Jesus, that he is the true high priest who would make atonement for sin once and for all. Verses 9 and 10. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. On one day, through this high priest, the sin of all his people would be removed. You know the day. In that day, verse 10, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. So there we are at the top of the mountain. We're not surprised that that's what we find. A vision of our true high priest, Jesus. And there's another vision that sits atop this mountain. It's vision 5 in chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. In this vision, Zechariah looks out and he sees this giant golden lampstand. And then on each side, an olive tree. In verse 6, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. So the last vision on top of this mountain was to Joshua the high priest. And the second vision at the top of this mountain is to the governor. And this vision is a lampstand. God was going to cast his light, his truth. His light would be shed from this high priest and this governor. And then he says this about Zerubbabel. Verse 6, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. So God was with this man. He was going to accomplish great things through him. The ESV study Bible says this, God's word to Zerubbabel is a reminder that the obstacles that face him in the rebuilding task will not be overcome by conventional resources of might or power. Instead, the resources will come from an outpouring of God's spirit. And then the meaning of these two olive trees on either side of the lampstand, verse 14, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So here's the mountaintop of these visions. At the top of this mountain, you have these two olive trees, you have these two leaders, Joshua and Zerubbabel. God was with them. One was the priest, and one was like a king. And not only would peace be secured through them, but also through their descendant, Jesus, who would be the ultimate priest and king. He would be the branch off this family tree. Lots of branches, lots of descendants, but then the branch. Who wasn't is Jesus. Heading back down the other side of the mountain now. 
quickly. Here are the next two visions. Uh, They are pictures of God defeating enemies that are among his people. Vision two and three was God defeating enemies outside. Here is God defeating enemies inside. Vision six is in chapter five, verses one through four. It is of a flying scroll. It is an enormous scroll. And here is the explanation given in verses three and following. This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. There was evil among God's people. There was lying. There was cheating. There was stealing, and it would be purged by the word of God. Then vision seven, it has an almost identical message to vision six. Only this time the evil among God's people is pictured as a woman in a basket. Chapter five, verse five. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover, so there's a cover of this basket made of lead, was lifted. And there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. And then we read on, and we would find in verse 10 that this basket, this woman, was banished to Shinar, otherwise known as Babylon. So this again is God overcoming obstacles to peace from among his people. And then we get to the foot of the other side of that mountain. And as we read before, we have this eighth vision of God's peace. But it is a far greater peace. So there we have Zechariah's eight unusual visions. And what did they collectively show God's discouraged people. Well, God's people should be encouraged because the all-powerful God was for them. And so the future was bright. That bright future would ultimately be a world at peace under the gracious rule of Jesus, God's appointed priest and king. And so we read after these visions in conclusion before he goes to his next section in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 6. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch. For he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. A horseman, chariots, a man with a measuring line, a woman in a basket, a lampstand, two olive trees, all of these visions so that this prophet would powerfully see that God was for him and for his people and God was going to secure peace, ultimate peace 
for his people. Zechariah was given the telescope so that he could see what he otherwise couldn't see. And then what was his job? His job as a prophet, as a preacher, was to go and to communicate these visions to the people. They were discouraged, like lost at sea. And how long are we going to be here? And we've been traveling aimlessly forever. And it doesn't look like land is anywhere in sight. And so God brought him to the top of that boat and gave him the vision of land. And what did Zechariah do through his preaching of these eight visions? Land. There's land ahead. You can't see it, but I can see it. So what does this mean for us today? I bet most of you have already found ways to apply this. I bet your heart has been moved, especially as we read those powerful images of Joshua the high priest with this filthy clothes looking shameful having nothing that he could wear to fit him to be in God's presence and God removing it and God clothing him or the image of a brand that has been plucked from the fire. Many of you feel like a brand that has been plucked from a fire and you should. I said at the beginning that God's message through Zechariah was not going to be suck it up. I find that's the kind of message that might come out of me naturally. When I grow impatient or angry with others. And to know the history of God's people and how they had been disobedient over and over and over again and God was gracious and merciful and then again they fall into disobedience over and over and over again. No one could be surprised if God just said, enough, I'm done. That's not the message that he gives. And in fact, he also doesn't give them a message that tells them to do a bunch of things. And I found that particularly fascinating. God's message is not, okay, do this, and then do this, and then you've got to do this, and then don't forget about this, and make sure you get this taken care of. What does God do? He gives them these visions. And what is the point of these visions? That they would see that they would see. This is how God works with his people. You all have doing problems, just like I have doing problems. I don't do the things so often that I'm supposed to do, and so often the things that I'm not supposed to do, I do. And that's a problem, and the Bible is full of commands, and the Bible is full of imperatives that tell us the kind of life that God wants us to live. And I love him, and I want to live that way. I want to delight in his law and know the kind of life and world that conforms to his will. But the problem behind your doing or not doing is a knowing problem. It's a seeing problem. We don't know God as we should. We don't see God as we should. But when we do, when we taste and see that the Lord is good, when we understand His will, when we understand His grace, when we understand His mercy, when we understand how good God has been to us despite what we deserve and how God, good God is to us, now we're being changed by God. 
so that we would obey him, for his people in that day so that they would rebuild the temple, so that they would get to work. So I hope you've seen something through this. I mean, where are we on this mountain? I think we're somewhere on the backside of that mountain. Jesus has come. He has made atonement for our sins. We have been cleansed by him. We have been clothed with his righteousness. And here we are. We are waiting for the day of total peace still, that last vision, when every knee will bow and tongue will confess. So we may need to be reminded, as God's people needed to be reminded then, that God is not losing. No matter what it looks like. God is not losing. God is not being defeated. We as his people are more than conquerors through him. He will accomplish his will through us, his people. We need to keep these same visions before us. And then finally, I would ask you all a question. Everyone in this room is either a brand in the fire or a brand that has been plucked out of the fire. And those are the only two options. So I want you to ask yourself, are you a brand in the fire? Or are you a brand that has been plucked from the fire? When you think about this, when you hear these images that God preaches through his servant, Zechariah, what is that? do in your mind and your heart. When you hear this, are you filled with gratitude? Do you understand and believe that you are sinful? That you are not deserving of God's love and God's grace, that you have no claim on it? You belong in a fire. And you're so thankful to know that God has rescued you from that fire and he has plucked you out of that fire. Or does this have another sort of effect on you? Does this make you angry with God? How could God pluck some out of the fire and not pluck others out of the fire? You don't think what a good and gracious God because no one deserves his mercy and love and yet he extends his mercy and love to so many. That's not what you think. You think we are deserving of God's mercy and love. We are deserving that he would save us. And so you're offended by these images. I want you to be, I encourage you to be honest with yourself. If that's how you feel, then I would say to you that you do not yet know God. You haven't truly seen who you are, and who he is as your Savior. 
And this is the best place that you could be. And with other Christians is the best place you could be. And reading your Bible is the best place you could be. Because you need to know God. You need to see God. You need to understand that you are not deserving of his love, but you're deserving of his judgment. You need to know that he has made a way for you to be saved, that Jesus came, he lived, he suffered, he died in the place of sinners like you and like me so that we could be reconciled to God. And so you must turn to him and place your faith in him and trust him. For those of you who have done that, who are Christians by God's grace alongside me here today. Let us continue to taste and see that the Lord is good, to know him more and more and more, that we would love him more and more and more and obey him more fully. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these visions that you gave Zechariah so many years ago. And we thank you, God, that these visions of your power and of your grace and of your mercy are for us also today. Some of these visions, God, have been fulfilled. Some of them have not. We know, God, that the death blow has been given to our enemy and we know that you reign. And we know that one day every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So God, we pray that you continue to change us and shape us. That we may live lives worthy of the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.